invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 3. We're looking this morning at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. If you are a middle school or a high school student, raise your hand for me. Let me see where you are. All right, raise your hand if you're middle school. Raise them high. All right, now you can put them down. All right. I, I realize that many of you are growing up just the way that I did. Uh, you're growing up in the church. Uh, you have uh, been raised to love the Bible, uh, to read the Bible by your parents, by your pastors, by your youth leaders. Uh, I remember as a, as a young child seeing my uh, parents reading their Bible, distinct memories, right, of my mom and my dad spending time in the scriptures. I remember my pastors, my youth leaders encouraging me to read through the Bible systematically when I, when I came to be your age, my teenage years. Uh, but I also remember uh, being excited about that, but, but coming, okay, I'm going to read the New Testament. Right? I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to start with the book of Matthew. But alas, the book of Matthew begins with a genealogy, right? And so, you know, your, your eyes would glaze over and, and my mind would begin to wander and I would just think this is so boring. And my Bible reading plans would, would end before they even had begun, right? Adults, have you ever had that experience? You know, sometimes I would start with Luke's gospel and, and I would get through three chapters and then come to a genealogy, right? Well, we come to that genealogy this morning. And so, because I don't want your eyes to glaze over, I don't want you to, to completely tune out the word of God, we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm not going to read the text and then preach it. I'm going to preach the text and then read it. Hopefully, as we do that, you'll be able to read it with more knowledge and, and more interest even. Now, as we come to a passage like this, there are two sorts of questions that come up when we, when we deal with this text. There's two sorts of questions because there's two sorts of questioners. First, there's the skeptic. Now, the skeptic asks a question, but as you often have seen, perhaps, people ask questions sometimes that are really statements, right? And, and so the skeptic comes to a text like this, and he's, he's asking a, a question that is a statement that is a, a challenge of unbelief. He looks at the genealogy in Luke and, and he compares it to the one in Matthew and he says, how can you Christians claim that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God? I mean, these, these, these genealogies, they, they contradict each other. They're so different. And so he sneers at the truth of God's word. There's another type of questioner. It's the disciple, the disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and his question is a plea, a plea of faith. He says, Lord, I, I believe your word. I believe that, that all scripture is indeed inspired by you. And so I believe that these genealogies, as different as they are, can be reconciled, even though I don't understand how. But I also believe that you tell us your, your word is useful, that it's, it's, it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But how in the world? Is Luke's genealogy useful to me as I walk as a disciple? Th those two questions are what I want us to, to try to answer this morning. I want us to, to see how it is that we would answer that challenge of the skeptic. But also, how do we answer that question of usefulness? Lord, what do we do with this? Why is this here? What's your purpose in giving us this genealogy? Well, first... As we seek to answer the skeptic's challenge of unbelief, 
You may have heard someone ask that question that I just raised before. You may have asked it yourself. Lord, here, here are these two genealogies, right? Matthew and Luke. One of them has to be wrong. They can't both be true, right? They're, they're so different from each other. How can you Christians claim the Bible is without error? Well, it is a legitimate question because they are different. What do we do with that? How do we explain these differences? Well, first, let's remind ourselves what the differences are. Uh, we see a different placement in the Gospels. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Luke has it here sort of in the middle at the beginning. But, but later on, uh, in between the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, we see different endpoints in the two genealogies. Matthew uh, takes Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. Luke traces him all the way back to Adam. And we see different directions, right? Matthew uh, goes from Abraham to Jesus, and Luke goes from Jesus backward to Adam. Now, these differences really uh, aren't that difficult, right? Because they can be explained uh, in terms of audience, different audience, different purpose, uh, different literary structure, as we'll mention some of that here in a moment. Um, the, the, the big issue, the big difference, the big chink in the armor for the skeptic is this fact that, that from Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus, down to, to King David, the two genealogies are completely different, apart from two names, right? completely different. And they, they have different numbers of names. So in Luke, there's 40 names between Joseph and David. And in Matthew, there's only 25. Now, now, the number of names isn't the biggest problem because we see even from the Old Testament genealogies, they're, they're not always comprehensive. They sometimes skip generations. That was something that was done as, as the Jews would write their genealogies. But in this case, the names are completely different, right? We, 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 we see different names of, of Joseph's father. We see him traced to different sons of David. Matthew traces him to Solomon. Luke traces him to, to another son of David, Nathan. How do we reconcile these apparent discrepancies and contradictions? Well, there have been several ways that Christians have attempted to relate these two lists to one another. Some say that, that Matthew's genealogy gives us Joseph's lineage Whereas Luke's genealogy gives us Mary's lineage. So that Heli, as you see the first name there in, in verse 23, Heli is actually Mary's father. And so Joseph is essentially the son-in-law of Heli. Now, now others don't like that. And others would uh, argue that, that one of the genealogies gives Joseph's physical descent Whereas the other genealogy gives us Joseph's adoptive descent, assuming that his natural father had, had died and, and, and he had adoptive father. Um, others believe that Matthew's genealogy gives Joseph's royal lineage, his legal lineage, whereas Luke gives us the physical lineage. Now, now both of those last two uh, arguments and explanations involve a practice that you read of in the Old Testament called leveret marriage. You read about it in the book of Ruth. You read about it in the story of Judah in the book of Genesis, right? Where uh, the Bible commanded in the Old Testament that a deceased man's brother was required to marry the widow and to bear children, right? Who would legally be considered the, the offspring of the deceased man. Right? So these three solutions are all held by, by believers and, and they all work. That's what I want you to see. All of these solutions are possible explanations. 
The, the fact of the matter is that, that there are several different ways that the supposed contradictions in the two genealogies can be explained adequately. But there is no consensus on which approach is the best. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that I would say to you if you're a skeptic this morning or if you're a Christian and you're struggling with, with this reality in the scriptures. The lack of certainty as to which is the correct solution does not imply error in either genealogy. It, it strains credulity right, to think that, that Matthew or Luke intentionally or even accidentally wrote a detailed genealogy that was incorrect. Both given the, the Jews' uh, emphasis and, and fascination with genealogies and given Luke's care and careful precision as a historian. You see, our knowledge is partial. We, we don't know how exactly to, to make these genealogies fit together the best. We don't know exactly which way is right, but it clearly is not the intention of the gospel authors to resolve the question, which means it's not the intention of God to resolve the question. And here's the thing we have to see underneath the question. It's so important that we recognize that, that this question, like so many others, is a matter of presuppositions. It's a matter of our prior beliefs. No one comes to the Bible neutrally. If you are a skeptic this morning, you are bringing to the text of Scripture your unbelieving presuppositions about the Bible. And so you look at this situation and you say, yeah, one of them must be wrong. I mean, the Bible is not inerrant. It doesn't matter. The Bible is a human document. It's filled with errors. It's filled with incorrect things. So what's the big deal that these two uh, genealogies are different? But as Christians, we bring to the text our belief that the Bible is the inerrant word of God because it is inspired God, is breathed out by God. And so precisely because we believe this, we do work to, to seek to find a way to reconcile these two genealogies. We, we can't be content with saying, well, it just doesn't matter. One of them's wrong, and it just doesn't matter if we try to figure it out. And so we, we're thankful for the scholars that are seeking to, to help us understand how these can best be reconciled. But here's the thing, again, even if we cannot determine the solution to this problem in every detail, even if believers disagree about how to reconcile these genealogies, we rest in the truth that God knows the answer. God knows the solution. And so we are content to have some of our questions unanswered. We do not demand absolute certainty in every case. We are willing to say, we don't know. We don't know exactly. But we don't equate uncertainty or, or ignorance of a solution with, with some supposed fact that there is no solution. There is no answer. Why? Because we maintain upon the basis of the scriptures themselves that all scripture is God-breathed, that all scripture has been inspired by God and is therefore without error. The word of God cannot be broken. That is our faith. That is our presupposition as we come to the scriptures. So that's the first question. And I hope that answer was helpful. And if it wasn't, right, then, then hear what I'm saying. The, the, the fact that, that we don't exactly know the answer doesn't mean that there's not an answer. It just means that we don't know what it is. But now let's come to the question of the disciple. It's the question of, of usefulness, of practicality, right? It's the question of, of what do I do with this? Why is it here? 
Why has God put this in his word? How does he intend for me as a believer to use it? How does he intend for it to grow me up and to strengthen me in my faith? Well, in a nutshell, I want to suggest to you that, that Luke intends this genealogy to point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to help you to walk by faith in the Savior. And he teaches us that. He shows us that in two different ways. First, Luke shows us here that Jesus is the second Adam. Or as we have already sung this morning, he is the true and the better Adam. Notice Luke, as we said, doesn't stop at Abraham. Matthew did that on purpose because he was writing to an audience of, of Jews. But, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And notice how he, how he ends the genealogy. He speaks of, of, of Adam, the son of God. Luke intentionally uses that language to, to drive home this point that, that, yes, Adam is the son of God, but Jesus is the true son of God. Look at how Luke puts his genealogy in between two different passages where the sonship of Christ is at issue. First, the, the baptism on the front end, where the sonship of Jesus is declared by God, right? This is, you are my beloved son, says the voice from heaven. With you I am well pleased. And then the text that we'll look at next week, the temptation of Jesus, where the sonship of Jesus is challenged. If you are the son of God, says Satan. Jesus is the son of God. And as the son of God, he is the second Adam. You remember in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul brings out this connection explicitly. But remember, Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. He had certainly heard the apostle preach and teach on this glorious theme, this glorious connection between Old and New Testaments. Adam was a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus, but in a, in a photonegative sense, right? If you're less than 25, you may not have ever held a photonegative in your life, right? Maybe you've seen some in a, in a you know, shoebox up on your, your parents' closet shelf, right? Here's the thing about a photonegative. If you ever see it, the lights are dark and the darks are light. Right? The way that the picture, the way the film works is that everything in a picture that is actually light is dark in the negative. And everything that's dark in the picture is actually light in the negative. And, and, and so I, I love that image of, of when we look at Adam to Jesus, right, we see that Adam foreshadows Jesus, but in sort of that opposite, that photonegative sort of way, where Adam disobeyed and brought death into the world. And what is a genealogy but a record of God's curse upon humanity, a record of the finite frailty of human life, because of Adam's sin, right? Adam brought this death. He brought this, the, 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 the reality of genealogy comes into the world because of Adam's sin and God's curse upon humanity. But where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And through Jesus's obedience, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. A couple weeks ago, we watch the movie Holes again. Holes is one of that movies. I remember thinking like, I think I've seen this movie, but I realized as I watched it, I've never watched like this entire movie, right? It's been on in my presence. Have you ever had a movie like that? Where you're like, I know I've been in the same room with that movie on the screen. And so we were watching this movie 
And if you've never seen it, it's, it's about a boy named Stanley Yelnats, and Yelnats is Stanley spelled backwards, right? Stanley Yelnats' family is under a curse, doomed to bad luck and failure because his great-great-grandfather, El Yelnats, did something. Here's the story. Elia wanted to marry a young lady named Myra, but he had nothing to give her as a bride price. And so he goes to Madame Zeroni and he says, Madame Zeroni, what am I going to do? And she says, well, take this runt of a pig, carry it up the mountain, let it drink from the spring on the top of the mountain, and do that until the pig grows, until you grow big and strong, the pig grows big and strong, give it to the father as a bride price, and you'll marry your beloved. Well, so Elia does that. He goes and he brings the pig up and down the mountain. He brings it to his, his father-in-law-to-be. And the father-in-law-to-be gives the, the, the daughter the, the, the choice, are you going to marry this Elia or are you going to marry this other guy? And the, 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 the girl chooses the other guy. And so Elia is frustrated. He leaves the whole country. He gets in the boat. He drives all our sails over to America. But here's the thing. When Madame Zeroni said to him, you're going to do this and you're going to carry this pig up and down the mountain. He, he said, you have to promise that you'll come back to me and you'll carry me up the mountain so that I can drink from the spring and I can become strong. And if you don't, she says, if you don't, then I'm going to put a curse upon you and your family for always and forever. Well, so Elia didn't do it. And that curse came upon the family. Everything they did failed. Everything they did was always marked by bad luck. So you come to Stanley Yelnats in this movie. Stanley Yelnats, this little boy, he's falsely accused. He gets arrested. He gets brought into this you know, concentration camp in the Texas desert. They're forced to dig holes. You have to watch the movie to figure out what's significant about that. Right. But eventually they escape. He and a little other boy escape, and, and they're without water, and they're going to die in the desert. And then Stanley sees in the distance this, this mountain that he remembers that his father had told him about. And he remembers that his father, actually his grandfather, had, had found you know, water in the top of this mountain when he had been lost in the desert. And so he, he takes his friend. They go to the mountain. His friend is, is close to death. He's not able to, to climb the mountain. So what happens? Stanley carries this little boy on his back up to the top of the mountain. They find water, and they drink, and they live. The little boy's name was Hector Zeroni who just so happens to be the descendant of Madame Zeroni. And here's the beauty, here's the, the gospel in this story, is that because Stanley did what his great-great-grandfather failed to do, the curse is broken. The curse is broken because of Stanley's obedience, Stanley's kindness, Stanley's keeping the promise curse is broken. And the, the Yelnats family has success all over again. Do you, do you see the picture? Do you see the story in the Garden of Eden? Adam disobeyed God. He disobeyed God's word. And God put all of his posterity under a curse. But as we read in Genesis 3, what else did God do in that chapter? He promised a deliverer, a redeemer, a restorer, a savior who would be fully human, the seed of the woman, who would be fully human, as this genealogy shows us. But he would be one able to conquer Satan. And yet he would not conquer Satan in any other way but through suffering. He would have his heel bruised even as he crushed the head of the serpent. 
Brothers and sisters, what Luke is trying to show us this morning in this genealogy, taking it all the way back to Adam, is that Jesus Christ has come in history, in time, in space, as the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. He has come as the second Adam to do what Adam failed to do and to suffer the penalty of Adam's failure. He obeyed God's word perfectly, as Luke will show us next week in the story of the temptation. But then, as all the gospels point out to us, Jesus died on the cross bearing the curse in our place. Through his death, through his suffering, the penalty that Adam's sin deserved in his human body, through his sinless life and undeserved death, Jesus, like Stanley Yelnats, undid the curse. He brought life and light and immortality instead of death and darkness. Jesus restores the eternal paradise that Adam lost in his disobedience. And so as we come to this genealogy, it ought to bring us great confidence, great comfort if you are in Jesus Christ this day. To know that, that your salvation is not based on your doings, your dying. It is based on the doings and the dying of Jesus Christ, who was an actual historical figure, who had a genealogy that could be traced all the way back to Adam. He was born as a man, and he kept God's commands for you, his people, in every detail. And he suffered the curse in your place. And he rose again from the dead so that as we live and as we die, we know that Jesus, who died, is alive forevermore. Alive forevermore to save us completely from our sins. So that every time Satan comes to you and, and says, who do you think you are that God would love you? Who do you think you are that, that you can, can stand before God with confidence? Look at, your, look at you. You're such a sinner. Look at you. You do things that, that you would be ashamed of. You, you do things that, that everybody else does. You're just like everyone else. However Satan might tempt us to despair, however Satan might tell us of the guilt within, what does the hymn we sing before the throne of God above say? Upward we look and we see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for Christ. Christ has done it all. God the just is satisfied to look on him, his son, and to pardon me. Luke's genealogy reminds us again that Jesus is the second Adam, the true and the better Adam. But there's one more thing that his genealogy reminds us, one more way that it's useful for us. And it's this, Luke is telling us, not only is Jesus the second Adam, he's also the savior for all humanity. See, by going back to Adam, Luke is identifying Jesus not only with Israelites, that was Matthew's purpose as he's writing to Jews, but Luke has a, a broader purpose, writing to Gentiles as well. And he's saying, look at Jesus. He's not merely the king of Israel. He's a member of the human race. And he has come to save humans from every race, every ethnicity, every people group, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 30 years old, Luke tells us, 
Here, Luke wants to remind us that Jesus' life and ministry and death have universal significance. He is a Jewish redeemer, indiscriminately given to the whole world. There is a universal purpose in the ministry of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean, don't hear me say that, that, that we believe in universalism as if every single person is saved. No, but Jesus is the only official savior for anyone. The only way that anyone can be saved is through trust in Jesus Christ. He is offered freely to all humanity. He cares not just for his own ethnic people, the Jewish race. He cares for humanity in general. If you're a, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, the only hope you have for salvation is found in Jesus. Yes, it's true that, that, that in time, in history, the promise that God made to Adam was narrowed in scope when he chose Abraham to be his, his unique and special people. But the reason for that was so that the, the son of God, the son of man might come into the world and bring salvation to all of God's elect from every tribe and tongue and nation. Now this truth of the, the universality of, of the, the Messiah of salvation was controversial in, in the first century, wasn't it? You remember Luke in, in his gospel, or excuse me, in his book of Acts, tells us that, that Peter had to learn this truth and, and digest this truth in his heart. It doesn't happen until chapter 10 of, Luke, of Acts, when Cornelius calls for Peter to come and to speak to him the words of life. And Peter has to be shown a vision that it's okay to eat unclean foods. And how does Peter end that section? He says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Welcome to him. Peter would say and echo what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This truth that was controversial in the first century can still be controversial even in our own day. It is so easy, isn't it, to think that Jesus is a savior for people just like me. And especially if our world is small and we're only around people just like me, just like you, it can be easy to think in those ways. But if the gospel of Jesus, as Luke is teaching us in this genealogy, is for all humans everywhere, for all the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, everyone made in the image of God, then we as a church should be a church for all peoples everywhere, a church for all humanity. We should desire that, that all peoples would come and, and to repentance and faith, and we should call them all, all types of ethnicities, all types of socioeconomic classes, all types of backgrounds, all types of sinners, Right, there should be no sin that we make people feel is too sinful to be covered and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There should be no type of sinner that we would drive away, that we would keep away from hearing the gospel. No type of sinner that we would want to coddle and say, well, your sin's not that bad. You come and hang out with us. Your sin's a respectable sin. No, we should want to invite anyone and everyone to come to worship and to come and be, feel welcome in worship, and not just feel welcome but to truly enter into our life and let us enter into, into their life, to get to know them as individuals. Every time I read a genealogy, I'm struck by this fact that we don't know who these people were. We have no idea, right? 
it's likely that even, you know, their great, great, great grandkids didn't remember their names. But God knew each and every one of the people that we're about to read in this list. Each person on Luke's genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, was known by God individually. It reminds us that we too will be forgotten, even by our own descendants. But we too, while we are alive here on this earth, and after death, we are known by God, by name. And so what does that mean for us? But that we as a church ought to commit to knowing one another and to being known by one another. It's not easy in the South, even though we're so nice, right? We're so kind, we're so friendly, we're so welcoming. And yet there is in the South such, how do I say it? So many relationships that we have, family around, friends from elementary school and high school and college. There's so many relationships we have. It is very easy to feel just tapped out. It's very easy to, to deal with people in a, in a surface sort of way because of that. It, it's easy with our, our overscheduled lives and our sports and our activities and our traveling, and our vacation and all the different things we have going on, sometimes really good things. It's easy to say, I don't have time to get to know this person. I don't have time to, to be involved in their life. I barely have time to know my neighbor's names. But God says through this genealogy, we are called to know people so that we might bring the gospel to them. God knows the names of his creatures. If Jesus came to be a human and a divine savior of individuals out of the whole of humanity, then he is calling us to join him in this mission. To go into the world, to reach out as we have opportunity. We have more opportunities than perhaps we realize to share the gospel, to get to know someone, to redeem the time with those who are around us, to let our speech be seasoned with salt, as Paul says in Colossians 4, to pursue relationships so that we might be able to show and to share the love of Christ to the lost. There is a use to this genealogy. It points us to Jesus, the second Adam, the true and better Adam, the Savior of individuals from the entire globe. Now, take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. This is God's word. Luke writes, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, 
the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It is useful. It trains us up in faith and hope and love. Oh Lord, would you help us to be devoted to reading the scriptures, even the parts that are complicated and difficult. Lord, would you help us to be committed to seeing Jesus in the scriptures? Would you help us and teach us and mold us and shape us, Lord, into a people who would welcome the stranger, welcome the outsider, welcome the lost as an individual made in your image, known by you by name. Lord, we pray that we would know one another well, that we would be committed to encouraging the brethren and committed to sharing the gospel with the lost, that you by your Holy Spirit might do the work that only you can do by the power of your son's life and death and resurrection and ongoing intercession for us. Come again quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.